Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Imagine for a moment that you're writing a letter to a future American, a letter to be found one day in an internet archive, or better yet, in a dusty attic, or tucked into the sheaves of a forgotten book. And you were writing about this nation and this week. So what do you want them to know? How do you start that letter? Well, Professor Richardson, how how would you begin that letter? This week saw a profound crisis in American history. As death tolls from the coronavirus reached more than 4,000 people a day, the leader of America's executive branch, launched a war on the legislative branch in order to overturn the very basis of our democracy, a free and fair election. Well, that is Heather Cox Richardson, professor of American history at Boston College and author of a very popular newsletter from which I am borrowing the conceit for this introduction. That newsletter is called Letters from an American. She's also author of many books, including How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America, and To Make Men Free, a history of the Republican Party. So, Professor Richardson, it's great to talk with you again. It's always a pleasure. Well, we've got a great roundtable of folks uh, that are going to explore this question with us. So if you can just hang on with me for a second. Professor Richardson, I want to turn now to Rose Scott. Rose, same question to you. How would you Mm -hmm. start that letter to a future American? First, I would offer an apology as a journalist on behalf of our industry, not necessarily my actions, but on a larger scale, feeding one man's ego with excessive coverage as a candidate and then as commander in chief and then not collectively as legitimate news outlets coming together and pledging to the American public. When we disseminate news about Donald Trump, it's going to be for truth. We're not going to nuance our messages and our headlines because we don't want to appear to be biased. That's what we should have done. So I would have to offer an apology to that person who happened to come across these letters. Hmm. And then I'll offer my reflection on the actions of a mob. You know, these individuals who absorb all of those lies that the news media, some of the, a lot of the news media allow to just grow and grow. And the actions of that mob. But then I would conclude with the message of hope because it's not about a particular party, but it is about the power of the vote Mm -hmm. in 2020 and 2021. Well, that is Rose Scott. She's host of the Midday News program Closer Look on WABE Atlanta's NPR station. And Rose, it's great to have you back on the show as well. Thank you. Uh, And Jack Beatty, On Point News analyst, rounding out our thoughtful roundtable today. How would you start that letter, Jack? Uh, Well, you may be wondering, uh, future, uh, how you got into the plight that you're in today, uh, which is the situation of of darkness and anti-democracy. And this week crystallized how the president won an election 73, I mean, lost an election in which 73 million people voted for him. They voted for a candidate who had told uh, over 20,000 proven lies. That didn't matter to them, nor did it matter after the election that he kept lying and that his lies incited a riot. It didn't matter to them. Uh, They were illustrative of the... uh, of the dark uh, line of W.B. Yeats. We had fed the heart on fantasy. The heart's grown brutal from the fair. There were many brutal hearts 
in that assault on the uh, Capitol, but they were produced uh, by by the lies and by the systematic use of lies. Uh, I, we had a we had a uh, a warning from Hannah Arendt: totalitarianism can flourish where people systematically refuse to engage with reality and are ready to replace reason with ideology and outright lies. That happened in, two th- in the Trump administration, and it, and it, it secured, it, it, it threatened your future with this anti-democratic mob that is a large part of the Republican Party. Hmm. Well, the reason why I wanted to start the show this way with the three of you in particular is because as we've you know walked through this week it has felt to me as if we're experiencing something of an earthquake in american history and i i use the earthquake metaphor intentionally because there's always the destruction that happens on the surface, right? But then in an earthquake, there are those deeper waves that tr- continue to travel or, sometimes or multiple times around the, uh, around the world for as long past when the, the initial destruction happens. And I, I want to get a hold of what those deeper waves are because those are the waves that will be touching future Americans. And so... So, Professor Richardson, let me just play uh, a, a voicemail that we got from a from an on-point listener, because I think trying to understand that is very much on people's minds. This is Mark from Cary, North Carolina, and he told us that what he saw in Washington with the mob, the insurrectionist mob in the uh, in the Capitol, somewhat mirrors what he sees in his community, and he's he's worried that we may be living that the United States may be already experiencing a a silent, even quasi-civil war. I have quite a few friends who I grew up with. They couldn't afford to go to D.C., but they still feel the same thing. They'll still do the same things that this group did. I think we are at the tip of the spear on this. Professor Richardson, what do you think about that? It's a really complicated question right now, as so many things are, but I would like to point out when people talk about that, first of all, the whole idea of us being in a civil war has been an idea, as we know, that has been pushed since at least 2018 by foreign operatives in this country. Um, That's pretty well established. And I don't mean that they're out there agitating, but this has been on the message boards, for example, as a way to destabilize this country. And what I would suggest is twofold. The first is that One of the things that happened on Wednesday was that, in fact, a mob of insurrectionists attacked the Capitol building. And I don't think we fully understand yet what happened there, not because people are being obtuse, but because it takes a while to sift out, for example, why the Department of Defense did not initially permit the National Guard to show up and reinforce the Capitol Police. Um, That's a question that I think we're going to have to know before we can really figure out what happened uh, on Wednesday in Washington. But what also happened on Wednesday was that Georgia, which is famously known as uh, recently anyway as a red state, elected um, by significant margins both an African-American senator and a Jewish-American senator to replace the two um, Republicans who were running on really extremist, radical Republican um, platforms to, to retain their seats in the Senate. And those two things are not uh, unrelated in the sense that the, the one of the seismic things I think that we're seeing is that um, a, a two generations almost of uh, an American political discourse that has been based on the idea that what we really care about more than anything is individualism for a man sort of generally assumed to be a white man to work hard and to keep everything for himself and to move his way up. Uh, that supply side economics that Reagan had pushed so hard has been revealed to be really a devastating thing that can only at this point stay in power through the lies that the two other journalists have been were identifying there and and we're at a tipping point because mo- a majority of Americans recognize that that system is no longer working for them and they have put in place a president who is and, and as Congress that is going to push back against that 
So in terms of a civil war, yeah, there's a lot of really unhappy people and they are listening to sources that are lying to them, something that I think we need to take care of both on Facebook and on Mm. Twitter and on Parler and on all the many places where disinformation is being disseminated. People are upset, they're concerned, they're they're afraid, they say they're ready to fight. And yet at the same time, there is a movement in America to say, no, that's not really what we want to be. It may be who we are, but it's not who we want to be. And it is that moment, I think, that that Wednesday really illuminated that this change is happening. And it's a change that is going to uh, to really create a new kind of America. The question is whether those reactionary elements will take over and really turn us into a fascist country or whether we will regain some form of democracy. So I think a lot of people looked who, who said, oh, yeah, I'm going to go out and fight just as they did in 1861, took a look at the people in that Capitol building, including, for example, the man that I can't get out of my head standing shirtless at the Senate dais in a bull costume with a white supremacist tattoo, or rather a religious symbol that has been appropriated by the white supremacists across his abdomen and said, you know, I may not like my government, I might be afraid of my government, but I don't think I want to be on the same team as that fellow there. And we have had a very similar moment on at least two occasions Mm -hmm. in American history before where people say, yeah, I may not be happy, but you know what, those people are not the people I want on my team. And they back up a little. And you're seeing that right now Mm -hmm. with the sudden abandonment of this administration by so many lawmakers and people who had previously supported it as recently as Monday. Yeah. Rose, I'm going to come to you in just a second here, but I've got a minute and a half um, before the break. And Jack, I just wanted to hear your thoughts in response to uh, what, what Professor Richardson said. Well, you know, uh, the danger is that there is in America a large body of people who are responsive to lies and who can be activated and, and, and mobilized through that. And there's, as she indicated, an infrastructure, an infrastructure of propaganda protected by the First Amendment. None of this is going to go away. Georgia was a hopeful portent, and it shows the America we could be. I'm afraid that the invasion of the Capitol and the and its enablement by the Republican politicians, I'm afraid that shows, as the professor indicated, the America we are. Well, Jack Beatty, Heather Cox Richardson, and Rose Scott, stand by for a second, because when we come back, we're going to talk a lot about Georgia specifically and what Georgia says to those future Americans. So hang on. We'll be right back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody had thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balance Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and 
Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and I'm joined today by three thinkers who are helping us consider the import of this historic week in American history, in our American present, and how we might communicate the decisions that the nation is making today to future Americans. I'm joined today by Jack Beatty. He's On Point News Analyst. Rose Scott is with us. She's the host of W, uh, excuse me, of Closer Look on WABE in Atlanta. And Heather Cox Richardson is with us as well. She's a professor of history at Boston College, author of the newsletter, Letters from an American. And I want to really focus for for some time on Georgia here because, (laughs) Rose, you got to forgive me in advance. We had had planned on doing lots of shows about the Georgia election. (laughs) And we did one on Monday and then... Some other stuff happened. So let us give Georgia its due. So first of all, just to recap, that Georgia had two runoffs this week. And uh, both Democrats won in those runoff races for the United States Senate, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. And here is a moment from Reverend Warnock's uh, victory speech that he gave via video, via remote. Here's what he said. In this moment in American history... Washington has a choice to make. In fact, all of us have a choice to make. Will we continue to divide, distract, and dishonor one another? Or will we love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Will we play political games while real people suffer? Or will we win righteous fights together, standing shoulder to shoulder? for the good of Georgia, for the good of our country. That's Reverend Raphael Warnock, who won one of the Georgia runoffs for United States Senate. And Jonathan Davis is a 34-year-old sales representative who voted for Warnock. And just want to play a moment from an interview that he gave with uh, NPR. And he said Warnock's victory felt especially meaningful to him. It's something special to me because I feel like I'm being a part of almost the second civil rights movement or something new, something just fresh. So um, it's exciting. So, Rose, tell us um, the the victory announcements for Warnock and then later Ossoff came in the middle of the convulsive attack on the Capitol. How, how, what's been going on in Georgia? What's been the, the mood there? Well, I, I'll get to that, but I, I want to back up for a moment sure. because – in all this self-reflection and everybody's having these cerebral moments to reflect on what happened in Washington, D.C. How many times has this nation said, this is not who we are? How many, how many times are we going to hear that? You know, W. Du Bois said a system cannot fail those who it was never meant to protect. Hmm. And for a lot of people of color in this nation... We've dealt with mobs all our generations. You had someone tell you, what, four or five years ago, who he was. When he said, I could shoot somebody in the street and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. You had someone say, if you see someone that disagrees, knock the hell out of them. So we've been here before. How many times is this nation going to keep saying this is not who we are? It goes beyond do you mean it? It's about execution. So when Senator-elect Warnock, and I just did an interview with him within the last hour, it's going to air Monday. When he talks about a choice to make, in my opinion, this is what I'm saying. You have a choice to make, America. And you've been saying this for centuries and you keep failing. You keep failing because you're, you, the system is not set up to protect everyone. 
Well, so we need to we need to that needs to be addressed first before we talk about we 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 don't want to be this. There's some you can call it reconciliation. You can call it reawakening, whatever. You have to address all these systemic policies and ideologies that are are rooted in racism. Rose, I'm actually really grateful that that you brought that up. We'll get to Georgia specifically more in a second, but but I am grateful because let me turn that to 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 Heather, because for for example, when President like Biden spoke uh, on Wednesday, uh, as you know, the, the, the siege of the Capitol building was going on. To Rose's point, this is exactly what Biden said. He said, this is not who we, quote unquote, we are. He, he said those words. And I think it is abs- it's not just absolutely fair. It's right to say, well, perhaps, well, perhaps or maybe we, this is what we are. This is what America is and has been for two and a half centuries or even prior to that. Can democracy can american democracy be preserved and strengthened strengthened is really what i'm interested in now without the acknowledgement the systemic acknowledgement of the point that rose is making well as she, i mean i think you know my answer to that and 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 i think that rose has put her finger on it that it's very easy to say oh this is not who we are and the way I think that white Americans take that is to say, well, no, like, I don't think that way. But the reality is that it doesn't really matter how an individual thinks that our system has been set up in a, such a way since the beginning that it, it, it that the scales are tipped entirely in favor, not entirely, I suppose that's maybe too strong a word, but overwhelmingly in favor of a certain group of people. And they overwhelmingly are white and male. And so when people talk about, I, I, I don't like the word reconciliation. Um, because I think reconciliation has to uh, come after somebody has acknowledged there's an issue. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we have the opportunity to do now is to reach into our systems. And, and I not just mean things like, um, like gerrymandering, for example, although I write about that a lot. One of the things that has been really interesting, and I suspect that both Rose and Jack would speak to this about what happened in Washington, is that the voices coming from Washington about what happened remain over overwhelmingly white in a city that is largely African-American. And, you know, in terms of just, uh, you know, you sort of think of it as a big, as a big table, you know, right now we need to level the table so that we have more voices before we even think about, not even before, at the same time we think about making sure that housing is equal again, that lending is equal again, again, that act, not again, is equal, that access to education is equal. And when I say that, a lot of people think, oh, you know, we're talking about sort of religious or moral imperatives. And yes, I think that there may in fact be religious and moral imperatives. But I think what you are putting your finger on is that you cannot have a democracy unless all ordinary Americans of different abilities, of different races, genders, ethnicities, has an equal say. And that has never been the case in America. Right. We've tried to get close to it, but it has never been the case. And until that's addressed, no, we will never be a, a true democracy, but we at least can aspire to to be one. Jack? Uh, and that aspiration needs to be to be honored, but we can't be a, a country uh, in in aspiration. Just to return to Georgia for a second, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm tremendously heartened by, by, those, by those wins. But when you look at the polling results, what does it show? The, the vote of affluent Georgians, people earning over $85,000 a year, increased for the Senate candidates over what they had been for Mr. Trump. Incre- In other words, the more, the more comfortable people uh, increased their vote for uh, uh, the two Republican candidates who were who were running really racist and, and demagogic campaigns. That uh, that 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 data point echoes the general election, where 54 percent of Americans earning over a hundred thousand a year voted for Mr. Trump. You know, we're not talking here about a lumpen proletariat. We're talking here about the top people, not the necessarily the rich. And that's, I think, the dirty little secret here. 
that that you know the the, the votes of the lumpen of the the mob put the Republicans in power, and then their tax cuts and the rest buy off the affluent who are willing to say, well, I don't, you know, I'm going to make a few bucks out of this, so I'll go along. Uh, and, and I think that's what those, ter- uh, to me, indictable, indictable pieces of data say. Vote goes up for, for the racist candidates among wealthy people, and it, it just as it, he, Trump took a clear majority of them in the election. Mm. So, Rose, you, you every day on your show, you talk to all Georgians, right, or, and through, through WABE. Mm-hmm. Um, help us think through that. It is, is, we, there's a lot of talk about Georgia being purple or tipping blue over time, and maybe we saw a little saw flashes of that uh, this week. But it, to the point Jack is making, it's not like purple. Are there are the sort of polar divides even stronger than they've been before? Whether it's fifty 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 one forty nine. I moved to Georgia in nineteen ninety six, looking for a job to be a journalist. <laughs> Georgia was very different. You know, this state, from a demographic standpoint, has been changing. That is what we saw. That that is a direct correlation of what happened this week with Ossoff and, and Warnock's win. But also what so many, and I'm not a mouthpiece for them, but what so many organizations have been trying to do probably for the last decade, educating, campaigning people, throw, throw out the political parties for a moment, educating people about the power of the vote to make an informed decision and also to make sure that they have voting rights. I have some friends who say, I'm tired of Georgia. People are always thinking that everybody in Georgia are all the southern states, that we're all these racists, you know, and that we've been suppressing people's votes. Well, it is what it is. These states have history, you know. And when they gutted the Civil Rights Act, what was it, 2013, 2012, whatever it was? yes. You, you took away protections. Those protections were there for a reason. And now we are probably faced with this again when our state lawmakers go, go back to work on Monday because there's talk of they're going to change or, you know, propose some different measures and, and get away with a no-excuse absentee ballot. So you, so you, you want to tell people, you got to give me, you, you can't have a reason for why you don't want to go to the polls. I mean, come on. So I, I and a lot of analysts I speak with, not ready to call Georgia purple or purple or whatever it is. It's going to take, I think, maybe a few more election cycles. But also understand this. If you think Georgia is blue, enjoy it now, because if lawmakers have their way, and this is going to be and this is going to be led by Republican lawmakers. If they have their way, you're going to have some laws that really, really impact people of color and primarily black folks. Yeah. Well, Heather, let me just I'm going to I'm going to turn right to you here. But but I'm just looking at one of the letters that you wrote recently. This is your January 5th letter. And you quote Lincoln, who said, I should like to know if taking this old Declaration of Independence, which declares that all men are equal upon principle and making exceptions to it, where will it stop? Well, yes, and that's that's what's at stake here. You know, once you, as I as I write and maybe wrote in that, I have to say it all becomes a blur on the next day. But that once you start to say that some people are better than others in terms of their ability to have a say in their democracy, then then once you have admitted that principle, then it's only a question of time until you are one of the people on on the losing side. And that's something that Lincoln put very clearly. And I think that we have to understand that that's the heart of an autocratic society or a fascist society, that some people are better than others. And they're the ones who are sort of uber citizens, if you will. But I want to go back to something that Jack said, and that is that in fact, the numbers that he is talking about in Georgia are dead right, as are the um, the the results of the 2020 election, when white Americans of of more means, in fact, uh, increased their share of the vote for Trump, and. Um, 
and for the the Republicans, especially not so much for Trump, but especially for the Republicans who support his his ideology. And um, and the the question that I think that we really should be addressing in America right now, and the one that I grapple with is, you know, this was not always the case. Look at the 1960s when um, uh, LBJ had a supermajority enabled that enabled him to put in place the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the mid 60s, and um, and that was a combination both of Republicans and Democrats at the time. Of course, the Democrats they were in the process of switching positions. But, you know, how does a society, which itself, you know, you certainly cannot look at America in, in, in those eras and say, oh, yeah, everybody was really democratic and things have changed now. Just the opposite. What created that kind of pressure for change? And of course, one of the things is the kind of language coming from the people at the top. But an awful lot of that is exactly what Rose identified. And that is that ordinary Americans saying, no, I want to have a say in my society and their neighbors saying, and I want you to. And the question for us, I think, going forward and making sure that we don't lose our democracy is figuring out how to mobilize a lot of people who otherwise might not usually be involved in the political process, but whose voices are important voices in terms of putting down the idea that they want to be behind an attack on the on, mm. on the, uh, the the Capitol building. And that's obviously what the, the project of the Letters for an American is all about. But it is, I think, important to remember that voices matter and how we represent voices matter and that the um, we are also dealing with the, the very media problem that I think it was Jacko identified that says, Rose, you know, yeah. what do you – Rose did mm-hmm. where, where you say, you know, people are listening to lies. Jack, what do you think? Uh, you know, I, I, I just want to go back to that issue of, of the more affluent people yeah. voting for Republicans. One face of the Republican Party was the mob. That the Trump incited, undoubtedly. But the other face is this group. And you can say of the mob, well, their voices aren't heard to take the professor's turn. People haven't been listening to their alienation. Their, their resentments haven't had a, a forum. Now Trump has been their voice and so on. What did we say about the affluent people who, for whom the government is created? Studies have shown that, you know, Congress basically works for them, only for them. What's their excuse? Can they be shamed out of their out of the Republican Party by, you know, it's it's said, you know, that Trump had a had an aesthetic revulsion looking at the sort of shabby people who broke in. He did broke into the Capitol. He said, gee, these people don't look so good. Well, will will uh, some of these well off Republicans have a, you know, aesthetic revulsion mm. to the face, the ugly, snarling face of their party? Well, Jack, uh, uh, Ruth Ben Giot, who's in a, a, a history or scholar of authoritarianism, she talked this week about how in authoritarian governments, the elite are more than happy to go along with the authoritarian until their own personal safety is at risk. And then only do you begin to see the flight away from the authoritarian. I, I do wonder if that's the path that we might see here. So we just got to take another quick break. So Jack, Heather and Rose, stand by. We'll be back. This is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, The Stolen Bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In this hour, we are considering this week's historic events and the impact that they're having on the nation now and will continue to have as they reverberate into the future. And we're trying to put ourselves in the space of as if we were writing a letter to a future American and trying to tell them about what happened this week and what they might see 
as uh, from the country that they occupy in the future. And I'm joined today by Heather Cox Richardson. She's a professor of American history at Boston College, author of the very popular newsletter, Letters from an American, and author of several books, including How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. Jack Beattie joins us as well. He's On Point's news analyst. And Rose Scott is with us as well. She is the host of the midday news program, Closer Look on WABE, Atlanta's NPR station. Uh, and Rose, I'm gonna, I, 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 I am going to come back to you one more time right now about a little bit more about Georgia, okay? Because I had said on this show um, a couple of times this week, and I think many people you know, have been saying this, that, that those two runoffs in Georgia, very, they, are, they are determinative of how the U.S. government is going to function for the next few years. So they are – even if nothing else had happened this week, it would have been a historic week because of what <laughs> took place in Georgia. So I just wanted to hear a little bit more from you. Um, you know, following Tuesday, what are, uh, what are your listeners telling you um, about the, uh, how they feel about the results? Just like give, give us the mood in Georgia. Oh, I think people are are excited. I think I think there's a faction that's un, uh, not happy, but I think there are for those that that voted for Warnock and Ossoff and those that wanted to to use their their constitutional right to vote. Um, yeah, there there's hope there. Isn't that what makes us work as humans? The hope, the hope that we can now have represent. In, in, in Washington that reflects our issues. That's what, that's what people are excited about. Yes, it is marred by these actions of this mob or insurrectionists or domestic terrorists and all these other words we have to get approval for to use as journalists, whatever you want to call it. Yes, it's marred by that. But folk, there is, yeah, folks are happy. And then, you know, look, there is some... Raphael Warnock will be the first black senator from Georgia. This is 2021, you know. But after the hope, you want to see the action, right? You know, and I, I, I don't want to give away too much of my interview with him, but, you know, I asked him earlier today about the balance of being a cleric and then a lawmaker, you know. Um, he and I, well, y'all just log on and listen Monday. So, you know, there is action behind there's action that people want behind. Now we've 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 got some new faces, some new ideologies, you know, hmm. but also too, and I had I had a listener because uh, Tuesday night it was honored to anchor some national coverage for NPR, had a listener send me a tweet that said, you know, Enough with this bipartisanship spirit. That doesn't work. Well, you know, I, I, I do disagree with that, mm. you know, because whether we whether folks like it or not, you know, political parties have to work together. Mm-hmm. I can't tell them how to do it. That's not my job. I'm going to report on it when they don't do it and when they do do it, you know. So there is that that needs to be acknowledged, too. Mm. If you want this, what you, what you want out of your hope is that there's action behind it. And so that remains to be seen. Yeah. And, you know, if, if folks want me to wax poetically about this is great, you know, that's that's not my job. My job is to follow this and see what comes out of it. Well, you know, uh, Heather, I'm going to steal a line from from Jack uh, that he uh, uh, mentioned in our morning editorial meeting. So, Jack, forgive me. <laughs> I'm going to steal this line from you. Um, Jack talked about how... Uh, in the face of the threat to American democracy that we saw with that insurrectionist mob in the Capitol, in the same week, we saw through through the successful and fair and legitimate vote, uh, runoff vote in Georgia, we saw a model of the success of what a multiracial democracy could be. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, I want to say um, one of the things that that we have not been paying attention to because we can't with the way things are rhetorically right now in this country is that 
Um, I, I don't think we can really say that what happened in uh, this last election was what a de- Democratic vote should look like, because Georgia is one of the many states, so is Texas, so is Florida, there are a number of states where there is still significant voter suppression. Mm-hmm. You know, not a question simply of, um, you know, the the obvious stuff you see, but the people who have been purged from voter rolls, who can't make it to, to the polling places because they're not available, who, you know, y- you know the whole list. And that, I think, is one of the things that you are hearing echo when a Republican leader says, if if the Democrats get in, we will never be elected again. What they mean is that they have so um, both gerrymandered and suppressed the vote that it, that they really do depend on that in order to be elected. So, um, so there is that uh, that I think we have to always identify. I do think that uh, that that that's one of the first things that I hope people will take on. I think Rose is also very tr- very right that, as I keep saying to my readers, the work starts on January twentieth. It doesn't end on January twentieth. But there was something really interesting that happened in Georgia that that I've been watching, and it's not unique to either um, the Reverend Warnock or to John Ossoff. But what they modeled was a very different kind of democratic approach to public discourse. So when uh, Kelly Loeffler for example, kept attacking um, uh, Warnock as being some crazy radical. He didn't argue that. He simply did that incredible ad where he was, you know, portrayed himself as sort of a, a, a middle-class guy walking his beagle through a suburb, and he threw a bag of dog poop in the trash. And it, um, it was, it was incredibly effective. I mean, everybody will tell you how effective that is. And Ossoff imitated uh, Pete Buttigieg when, rather than trying to defend himself, he went on live Fox News and brought it again and again and again to David Perdue, and that new face of controlling the political discourse, not by engaging with the Republicans on their terms, but rather turning the tables or dismissing their their false statements, I thought was a really interesting new approach that um, that, that really jumped out at me. And I, I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but it felt like a very different Democratic Party. Rose? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Warnock, soon after it was evident there was going to be a runoff his very first ad said look i'm gonna I'm tell you everything that they're gonna tell you about me i don't like puppies <laughs> you know all this i mean and by the way the puppy's name is alvin that he used uh, in his <laughs> ad because i asked him but you, you know there's another aspect that is too and that is yes there was and there was so much money that mm-hmm. came mm-hmm. into georgia we're talking about maybe close to 800 million dollars here you saw sort of the old school, I mean, pandemic or not, but you saw these grassroots organizations getting out there, mask, still knocking on doors, having these drive-in rallies. You saw them talking to people, talking about issues. And I think Leffler and Purdue spent too much time just harping on, don't vote for these guys because they're this, that, and the third, and didn't focus on issues. People get tired of that, you know? Um, I think with Warnock and and Ossoff and what they did was just to say, look, you know what? If this is what they say I am, that's up to you to to determine that or believe it. Why spend money on campaign ads saying I'm not this, I'm not that? I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to do for you, the people. And it appeared to have worked, Hmm. you know. And and I think especially for Leffler, too, when you own a professional sports team, and your players don shirts that say vote for the other candidate, there's a problem. Hmm. You know, uh, there's a problem there. And uh, the WNBA, the Atlanta Dream and the WNBA are they, they don't get enough credit for what they did during this time. Now, take what you want with that. First of all, I love the WNBA, I love sports. You know, but you need to understand how powerful that moment was, not just in sports, but also in politics. Mm-hmm. That entire team. That's never been done. Donning shirts to say vote for this person who's running against the owner mm-hmm. of the team they play for. For now, because I don't know how long she's <laughs> on the team. Yeah. Well, you know, I want to... Um uh use that as an opportunity to to also bring it bring it back to the question of uh American democracy overall and um 
because because I also have, we just I don't we don't have time to find an answer to this question at this moment. But you also have to wonder what effect it had on the Georgia vote that President Trump had been pounding away uh, on the legitimacy of, of of elections, right? Like actively telling people you can't trust the election. So um, the reason why I wanted to, to mention that is because I do want to look forward a little bit. And and here is uh, some here are some some voicemails that we we've received from uh, from on point listeners who are sort of continuing to ask that question about next steps for this country. So, for example, here's Suzanne from Grinnell, Iowa. From my perspective here in Iowa, it's clear that if we hadn't had COVID, Trump would have gotten reelected. So to me, this is very, very frightening that the people around me who voted for Trump could not see his authoritarian bent or weren't worried about it. And here's Julian, an on-point listener from Santa Clarita, California. That domestic terrorists were able to capture the Capitol building of our country. And yet when I protest in a small suburb in California, they send the National Guard. We need to reevaluate what we're doing with America. We need to reach out to these people who are clearly lost. I hope we can fix this. Now, Jack, I know you had some thoughts on what might be or, or one prescription for an immediate fix to the authoritarian bent of the Republican Party. Well, it, it's, a, it's, again, aspirational, mm-hmm. but it does seem to me that the hope for democracy in this country is to split the Republican Party, to split it between the mob party represented by Senators Hawley and, and uh, what's, his, uh, what's his name from, I can't even, Ted Cruz, Cruz, Ted Cruz from Texas, Cruz, like, yeah. plus all the hundreds in the House, separate that party from the nucleus of a party to be. Uh, And and where will that be found? Well, maybe around the Lincoln Project, maybe around uh, people like Mitt Romney, Ben Sass. But it's imperative because I I do believe that if if the Republicans take the House, and they're likely to uh, in the next uh, election, and then they take the presidency, I'm afraid they will shut democracy down because they can't get what they want under democracy. Conservatism doesn't fit with it. You can't ban abortions under democracy. You can't make this a paradise for the rich under democracy. They can't get what they want under the system. And we've had, you know, we had Larry Bartels on our show looking at research showing that Republicans were more and more willing to embrace authoritarianism out of ethnic resentment, out of a feeling that, that, that somebody else was getting too much than they should, and also out of a feeling that the things they wanted, these resentful people, couldn't be got under democracy. Mm. Well, Heather, I have this question that I've been really eager to ask you because, you know, in, in the long run, there must be some kind of civic convalescence in this country. And that is a project of of perhaps a generation. Uh, In the medium run, per Jack's point, uh, or or aspirational idea, some kind of party realignment. But isn't there also the need for some kind of immediate action? Because this question of, if, if not now, in terms of saying this democracy is worth protecting, so therefore holding people who might threaten that democracy accountable, if not now, then when? And the reason why I ask it is because, you know, there are 12 days now left until January 20th. So even though there may be discussion about the 25th Amendment, there seems to be significant pushback on the feasibility of enacting it, um, you know, the feasibility or timescale of, of impeachment, the hope being for now maybe that trusted advisors might surround the president. So my question for you in the last couple of minutes that we have here is I, I would like you to help us look to history. Is there a moment that we can learn from where accountability was necessary to hold politicians to account, but that our democracy failed to do that? And what happened? 
there were three occasions uh, that I'm, I obviously don't have time to go into all of them. The one that most people will remember is Nixon. You know, the fact that Nixon was pardoned mean, means that a lot, since then, presidents have thought they were untouchable. But the moment we need to look to right now is Reconstruction. You know, the fact that there was never any penalty for starting a war that killed, uh, you know, 600,000 people and cost almost $6 billion at the time. And the people who were in charge of that were back in Congress within months making laws for the people who did defend the United States government was a huge error. If we had made it odious to be a supporter of the Confederacy, I firmly maintain we would not be where we are today now with the Confederate flag having been taken into the United States Capitol. So yes, we must have accountability. And that does not mean, as I keep saying, taking people out against a wall and shooting them, which is it is the exact opposite of accountability. It's enforcing the law equally on everybody from, uh, you know, the, the lowest person who has committed a violent crime that we all find heinous to the president of the United States. And that, unless we do that, we're in democracy in name only at this point already. Well, Heather Cox Richardson is a professor of American history at Boston College, author of the newsletter Letters from an American and the new book, How the South Won the Civil War. Professor Richardson, a true pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And Rose Scott, host of the Midday News Program, Closer Look on WABE, Atlanta's NPR station. I will be tuning in for your Warnock interview on Monday, Rose. Thank you as always. Glad to be a part of it. And Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst. It's a pleasure, Jack. Thank you. Thank you. And folks, how would you write a letter to a future American? Call us at 617-353-0683 and leave us a message. What would your letter contain? Or find us on Twitter at Facebook and On Point Radio. Share your letters with us to those future Americans. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big inside of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.